0: Remain standing for our epistle lesson and sermon text from Romans 6. Read verses 12 to 14. Give your ear to God's word. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members... As instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are, for you are not under law, but under grace. As far as the reading of God's Word, this is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, open our hearts to the truth of your word. Give us a deeper knowledge of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his gospel, and our response to it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In May of 1972, the Duke of Windsor died. He was also known as Edward VIII. Many remember him as the king who reigned over the British Empire for less than a year in 1936 before giving up the throne to his brother George VI. In a BBC interview, the Duke of Windsor reflected on being raised as a prince, as as a prince of Wales in a royal home, the royal home of his father, King George V. Here's what the Duke said about his upbringing. My father was a strict disciplinarian. Sometimes when I had done something wrong, he would admonish me saying, my dear boy, you must always remember who you are. It's fitting for a father to tell his son, it's fitting for a king father to tell his prince son, perhaps especially, remember who you are. And of course, the king father didn't want his son simply to remember, to think about who he was. He also wanted him to behave accordingly. That was the point. Remember what you are so that you will be what you are. Romans 6, Paul exhorts us more than once throughout the chapter, to know who, what, we are. In verse 3, he said, we are to know that those who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. And then in verse 6, he told us to know that our old person was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be nullified, done away with, destroyed, brought to nothing, so that we might no longer be slaves to sin. God wants you to know who you are and then to allow that knowledge to control and define your behavior. If it's appropriate for a future earthly king to be called to account on the basis of his royal identity, How much more should you be certain of your identity in Christ and behave accordingly since you are destined to reign with Christ over far more than any earthly kingdom? The Duke of Windsor could trace his lineage back hundreds of years. Descendants of British royalty don't need genealogy.com to tell them their ancestors are right The, the duke's lineage was was known he he knew better than most of us who he was at least in terms of his royal blood on his father's side to discover who you are and where you came from as a believer in christ you have two lineages to consider to trace The first one is as old as history itself, going all the way back to the beginning of creation. The other one only goes back to the moment you became a Christian. The first lineage lineage is, is countless generations old. It goes back to Adam, the first Adam, as we saw in Romans 5. From that lineage, you inherited death, physical and spiritual death, and slavery to sin. Your other lineage is only one generation old, It was established when you were united to Christ through faith and in baptism. This lineage became your heritage when you were converted to Christ, when you became a child of God, a new creation, when you were crucified with Christ, as Paul says it, and raised with him to walk in the newness of life. At that moment, you died to sin and your identity changed In Adam, you were sin's subject, a slave under the reign of that dictator sin. but in Christ, you've been given a new heritage, a new lineage, a new father, a new sonship. you're in a new and better kingdom. You belong to a new royal, a new household, that's a royal household, and you're in the process of of being made ready to reign with Christ forever in his eternal kingdom. Last week we ended on verse 11 where Paul says that believers in Christ experience what he experienced. Jesus is dead to sin forever and alive to God forever. And Paul says that you too experience in him death to sin and life to God. And how does this happen? How do you make this your own? Paul, Paul talks about it as an objective truth that applies to you, but how, how do you make it a subjective reality? How, how do you own, as it were, your death and resurrection in Christ? Well, Paul says it's by considering, considering yourself, reckoning yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. Romans 6.11 is the first Imperative. Did you know that in the book of Revelation, that Romans six eleven is the first command in the entire the entire letter. So you too consider yourselves. That's the command. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Paul's first command in this letter, and it marks. The reason I point that out is because it it marks the definitive. It marks definitively Paul's transition from the doctrine of justification to the doctrine of sanctification. Now, those are big words. In in case you're not familiar with, with those terms, let me say it differently. In Romans 6, Paul transitions from teaching primarily about how to be right with God, justification, to teaching primarily about how to obey God and to become more like God and to become holy, sanctification. Justification is being declared righteous before God. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like God in the way that you behave, imitating God in your mind and in your heart and your actions. So Romans one to five focused on how to be declared righteous before God, and Paul's not gonna leave that subject completely behind, but that was the focus there. And that happens by faith alone, apart from works. Now in chapters 6 to 8, he'll focus on how to live righteously before God. Sanctification. And this happens when you present yourself to God and submit yourself to the reign of grace in your life. Once Paul issues that first imperative, that first command in verse 11, the floodgate is open, or at least a a mini floodgate. Uh, In verses 12 and 13, Paul issues real quickly a series of commands, as you can see in 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 the text. If you're the kind of person who likes to know what God requires of you, like, what do I do? Then verses 12 and 13 should appeal to you. Paul tells you, what you must do and the overall command is you must not submit to the reign of sin okay that's the that's kind of the overarching command that the other ones in some way fall underneath or support in verse 12 paul begins to spell out if we think about verse 12 in relation to verse 11 in verse 12 paul is spelling begins to spell out what it means for you to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to god Therefore Paul says, "Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey it sin in its lust." So this prohibition in verse 12, "Do not let sin reign over you in your body," anticipates the promise down in verse 14 that sin will never again reign over you. Sin will not exercise lordship over you." Paul says, "We I want to make sure you see that at the outset as a guarantee, a promise. It's, that's the, it's not a command at that point. It, um, I mean, he will say things like that as a command, and he can do that. It's not a problem. But in, this, in verse 14, he's actually laying down the gospel foundation, the, the truth that, that lies underneath these commands in 12 and 13. And it's important that we see that gospel foundation. Promise, guarantee there is the foundation. Telling a person who's still under the lordship of sin to stop letting sin reign in his mortal body is like telling a drowning person who can't swim to stop drowning and just swim to shore. Such a command might add insult to injury. No, the reason you're able to prevent sin from reigning in your mortal body The reason this just isn't something that's just coming down on you that you can't bear is that Christ has dethroned and disempowered sin in you. He's rescued you from the power of sin. And he's saying it's never going to reign over you again. Okay. Think about these commands, this call to sanctification with that in mind. The mortal body in verse 12 refers to the physical body. We talked about this a little last week, so I won't go into too much more depth this week. But back in verse 6, he, he refers to the body. But it doesn't simply refer to the body. Paul has in mind the whole person, ultimately. He's not saying that our sin problem is rooted in our physicality, our physical bodies, these flesh, this flesh and blood that we can see and feel. He knows our sinfulness goes... Deeper than what meets the eye. Our depravity originates deep in our inner being. It, 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 all Paul means here and in verse 6 is that the mortal body is, is the vehicle through which sin is carried out on the ground. It, it, that's where sin is accomplished concretely. The, the sin that resides in your heart manifests itself in your body. The sin that exercises lordship over mankind takes shape in bodies, which are by nature emblems of sin, instruments or weapons of unrighteousness. And since Paul has in mind the whole person, um, the, you know, remember, he doesn't, he's not separating body and soul the way we might be tempted to think about those two things. And, and so since he has the whole person in mind, the lusts that he refers to in verse 12 include desires that go all the way down, that reside in your heart, mind, will. Right? Those invisible parts of you that we think about as invisible the desire to get your own way, the desire to have what someone else has that's not been given to you, the desire to control others, and the list of lusts goes on. We could translate the word lusts as desires or cravings. It refers to appetites that belong to the old you, the old man, the old person who was enslaved to sin. Paul's overall point is that you mustn't let the reign of sin regain a foothold in in the heart of the new you, right? Don't let it gain a foothold the way it had the old you. There's been a change of lordship in you. Think about it that way. There's been a change of lordship in you. So revere Christ alone as Lord in your heart. In verse 13, Paul unpacks his overall command. First, he says, Don't present your members to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. Okay, that's the first half. Don't present your, your, your members uh, to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. And then he says, Do present your members to God as weapons of righteousness. Let's look at the text again, verse 13. And do not present your members to sin as weapons of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. And present your members to God as weapons of righteousness. The first thing I want you to notice is the progression from verse 11 to verse 13. Paul moves from the general you in verse 11 to the more specific your body in verse 12, to the even more specific, your members, in verse 13. But I also want you to notice that in verse 13, your members is just another way of talking about yourself. Do you see that right after Paul says not to present your members to sin? He says, but present yourselves to God. And so this is where we we can see... Paul defining body and and members of our body. It's not just a physical thing. He's using that as a way of referring to the whole self. Don't present your members to sin, but present yourselves to God. And so here here we see that when Paul talks about holiness in your body and its members, he's really talking about holiness in, the, in your entire self, your whole being, the thrust of today's passage is that Christian, as Christians, we can now, because we've been freed, present all of ourselves, our bodies, all the members of our bodies, and indeed our entire persons to God as instruments in his hand, as weapons of righteousness in holy warfare. did you know you've been enlisted to fight in holy warfare? Your baptism into Christ was your entrance into the army of God. And and as a soldier of Jesus, you have weapons of warfare. Some some translations translate it instruments, which which is fine. Uh, a, A little bit more literally, as as weapons. And that does seem to be the idea here. Before you were in Christ, your whole person and all its parts were weapons of unrighteousness. Your mind and your heart, your eyes and your tongue, your hands and your feet. But now that you're in Christ, your whole being and all its members have been redeemed for a new purpose. They've been made holy, they've been set apart, they've been sanctified to walk in holiness. You've been saved from the inside out, and so you're no longer defined by the the depravity of your old self, the old person, because that's not who you are actually anymore. This is a little bit abstract, so we need to ask, what's it mean to go from using your members for unrighteousness to using them for righteousness? What, what's this look like? Well, let's just consider in some detail one, one of our members, the Tom. We'll just spend a few minutes thinking about one member. And how it can get used for righteousness or unrighteousness. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. James, the, the brother of our Lord, writes more than any other biblical author about the tongue and its power. Its power for good or for evil. In chapter three, starting in verse five, James says, the tongue is a small member. I want you to hear a lot lot of the same language that Paul uses. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Does your tongue set forests ablaze? Does it stain your whole body? Keep in mind, James isn't talking about, or just about, flagrant sins that the whole world knows about here. The ones that make the news or something like that. The ones you have to get up in, in front of the church and confess. That's, you don't have to be a, a Haman or a Hitler to create a world of unrighteousness with your tongue. You can do it on the phone or behind closed doors. Forest fires often start small. with with an untraceable little flame. But the the little flame becomes big and insatiable, destroying everything in its path. A little gossip becomes a hellish forest fire. A, A casual lie creates a whole world of unrighteousness. A small slander becomes deadly poison. One slash of the tongue can injure another soul, maybe permanently. The tongue is a small member, but it boasts of great things. But fellow Christians, you're able to use your tongue to praise God, to build up your brother, to speak the truth in love, to tell the truth to your boss, to recite scripture, to affirm your love for your children, to honor your parents to express gratitude, to put the best interpretation on what your spouse said. The unconverted person can only use his tongue ultimately as a weapon of unrighteousness. He's unable not to do that. To, to create worlds of unrighteousness. But if you're a Christian, your tongue has been set free from that bondage, from sin. It's no longer enlisted in that army. It's still a weapon, but it's in a different army now. You can now create worlds of righteousness and tear down worlds of unrighteousness. You, you can put out fires with your tongue rather than creating them or fanning them and to flame. Your tongue can be the, the antidote to the deadly poison released into the community by someone else's tongue. Your member of righteousness, your tongue, can provide the balm on the laceration caused by someone else's weapon of unrighteousness. <coughs> Psalms 1 and 2 illustrate this well the good and the evil uses of the tongue. You may not have noticed this. I want you to see, Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he, what? Day and night. Meditates. The verb meditates is an interesting verb that's kind of hard to translate perfectly into English, but it describes fundamentally an activity that kind of includes the tongue. It, it involves forming words in your mouth as well as your mind. It includes the, the movement of the tongue. To meditate on God's word is to put it in your mouth, mind, and heart, even on your tongue. I'll give you a couple ways that we, we know this. We, we see this clearly in Joshua 1.8, which says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. What's the next phrase? You shall meditate on it day and night. So those are two parallel ways of talking about the same, thre- the same thing. To-, to meditate on God's law day and night is to keep it in your mouth day and night. An even better example is in the Psalms itself. And there are multiple examples that I could point to. But Psalm 35, 28 says... My tongue shall meditate on your righteousness. That's pretty clear, right? A lot of the translations don't put meditate there because it's, what's that even mean? But uh, in fact, I think I only found one, if I remember correctly. Meditation involves the tongue, biblically. Meditation on God's word is an activity of the mouth and tongue as well as the heart and mind. And so when you meditate on God's law, you're, you're talking God's law, you're praying God's law, you're memorizing it, you're saying it out loud, you're putting it inside of you. Not just through your eyes, not even just through your ears, but through your mouth. What's fascinating is that Psalm 2 uses the same Hebrew verb, but we miss this in our English Bibles because it typically, typically gets translated differently, usually as plot, or devise, or Imagine. Why do the nation's rage and the people's plot in vain? Plot in Psalm 2 is the same exact verb as meditate in Psalm 1. The old American standard version actually uses the word meditate in Psalm 2, so we can hear the echo of Psalm 1. Listen to how the American standard, the old, not the new American, the old American standard, The opening of Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate a vain thing? Well, the scene in Psalm 2 is a world summit meeting in which all the evil kings, all the rulers of earth have gathered together to take counsel with one another against Yahweh and against his Christ. They're at war with God in Psalm 2 and they gather to rage against God and to meditate on vain things, a vain thing. These meditations no doubt take the form of inspiring words that rally the troops. Their tongues, their weapons of unrighteousness are leading them into battle against God and his Christ, into the way of the wicked, a a way that will eventually perish, Psalm 1 says. But how is the righteous man using his tongue back in Psalm 1 as a, as a weapon of righteousness? Scripture never departs from his mouth because he meditates on it. He tosses it around in his mouth with his tongue day and night. That's, that's the image here. That's, that's the visual. He's med- his meditating tongue Leads him away from the counsel of the wicked, away from the path of sinners, away from the seat of scoffers, to streams of water, to the way of the righteous, to the congregation of the righteous, and ultimately to everlasting life. Two different meditations, two different paths, two different ends. Are you using your tongue as a weapon of righteousness? Which path are you on? Are you filling your mouth with God's words day and night? If you're memorizing scripture, you, you probably are in a very literal way, right? Because when we memorize scripture, we tend to use our mouths. We say it, we memorize it, we read it, but then we, we have to say it. Other people, perhaps, or just in the car when you're reviewing. You say it out loud. But... Even more broadly, are, are you filling your mouth with the words, the truths of God? Is that what goes in and what, is that what comes out? If so, that's what, if that's what you're filling it with, then there won't be room in your mouth for idle talk, inappropriate jokes, you know, low-level curse words, profanity, inconsiderate speech, throwaway comments, flippant references to God, substitutes for flippant flippant references to God, sarcasm, excessive silliness, excessive wittiness, excessive levity, frivolous speech, worthless banter, off-putting verbal habits, harsh words, or complaining. And there certainly won't be room for gossip, slander, lying, Your mind and mouth cannot house both the words of the world and the words of God. And and what you fill them with, whether God's words or man's, will determine whether you are presenting your tongue, one of your members, to sin as a weapon of unrighteousness or to God as a weapon of righteousness. The tongue that is of use as a weapon of righteousness is engaging in holy warfare. And the tongue that is of use in holy warfare is the tongue that has been flooded by the word of God. That's continually flooded by the word of God. And so shaped by the word of God, trained by the word of God, soaked in the word of God, tamed by the word of God, bridled by the word of God, empowered by the word of God. Informed by the Word of God? How do you turn your tongue or your eyes or your ears into weapons of righteousness? Well, by flooding them with God's word and by starving them of vile or trivial things. Did you hear that? How, how do you turn your eyes or your ears or your tongue into weapons of righteousness by flooding them with God's word and by starving them of vile and trivial things. We can can broaden this out. Are are your tongue and eyes and ears and hands and feet filled in your mind? Are they filled with and controlled by God and his living and active word. The commands in verses 11 to 13 are grounded in the promise of verse 14. What you must do as a Christian is based on and it flows from what you are in Christ. Verse 14 says, you are under the lordship of grace. That's the what you are part. For sin will not exercise lordship over you. That's a guarantee, remember. And why won't it exercise lordship over you? How, do you, how, can you how, how can you bank? Why can you bank on this? Because you, the rest of the verse, because you are not under the law, but under grace. It's another way of talking about that transition. Sin here is once again personified it won't be the last time Paul personifies sin, but it's personified here as a dictator who will never again exercise lordship over you. This is an objective reality for the Christian, and it's the basis for everything Paul says in this chapter about sanctification. Okay, that's, it's the foundation. Remember, sanctification means growing in holiness, becoming more like Jesus. The basis of your sanctification is the objective reality that sin is not your master anymore. And that's God's work. What are the sins in your life that seem to exercise lordship over you? The sins that you can't imagine really experiencing freedom from. Have you told yourself that certain sins are inevitable? If so, then at bottom, the problem is the problem of not actually believing the word of God, not believing the gospel. Preventing the reign of sin in our mortal bodies is is not for the faint of heart. Killing your habitual sins, whether it's losing your temper, with the kids, or comparing yourself to others, or harboring resentment toward those who have done you wrong. Killing the sins that entangle you is a daunting duty, and it doesn't happen by beating yourself over the head or trying harder next time. You can't strong arm the sanctification process that way. you've probably tried it, but to, to live a holy life, you need much more spiritual strength strength than you can muster. A critical mistake we make in, in, our, in our walk with the Lord is thinking that the main thing we need to do is just cultivate more willpower, more resolve, more determination, more spiritual fortitude, more strength. But what we actually need to do first is realize that God's grace is sufficient for our sanctification, just as it was sufficient for our salvation in the first place. And God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Victory over sin doesn't spring from inside of you. You can't lift yourself up into the air by pulling really hard. On your shoestrings. It will do you no good to grit your teeth harder. Or to get better strategies. If you want to throw off the sin that entangles you. And you must. It is a command. It is a responsibility. The first and most important thing you must do is throw yourself on the promises of God. Including the one in verse 14. If it doesn't start there i can guarantee you there will be no victory no success because there's no power brothers and sisters a change of lordship has taken place in you and the power you need to defeat sin stems from your assurance your certainty that the permanent change of lordship in you is the most basic and most significant fact about you. You don't need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't. You need to revere Christ as Lord in your heart, 1 Peter three fifteen. You need to recognize that Jesus, without your assistance, and even without your permission, invaded your heart, Conquered the former dictator there, sin, and set up a new kingdom, a new reign, even a new creation. You're no longer under the reign of sin. You're you're no longer getting beat down by God's law. You're under the life-giving reign of grace now. So Paul's exhortation isn't be better Christians. That's, that in itself, by itself, is a graceless message. And, be, and because of that, because it's graceless, it possesses no power. Paul's exhortation is, is be what you are. That is, become what you are becoming. But I actually need to add to an even better. Way to say it is become the new you that God created in Christ. Become the person God is already causing you to become. There's a holy war going on in your heart for your soul. If you're a child of God, the enemy can't win the war. He he, he can't win the overall war. He will never again, exercise dominion over you. He can win battles, but he can't win the war. And he can only, the enemy can only win battles in you, in your life, when you lend him the authority and the power to do so, authority and power that God stripped from him when he saved you. You lend the enemy power when you present your members to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. But the enemy, sin, remains powerless in your experience as well as, in fact, when you present your members to God as weapons of righteousness. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. Thank you, Father, for delivering us from the domain of sin, the reign of sin, and help us to live out what you have accomplished, to become what you have caused us to become and to live worthy of the gospel to which we have been called, which we can only do by your grace, the same grace that rescued us in the first place, we rely on it to continue in that good work. And so continue the good work that you've begun in us to the end. We ask for it in the name of Jesus, amen.